Today is Low Sunday, Low Sunday. Anglicans uh, take a look at the festivities that have occurred over the last week or so, and usually there is a lull afterwards, and it became rather uh, uh, poorly named Low Sunday. If you go to a lot of very high Anglican churches, everything's quite subdued. Uh, but despite the fact that this is Low Sunday, uh, there is a coincidence today that's going to force me to talk about Greek things. Uh, today is uh, uh, Easter Sunday for Greek Orthodox. It's Easter Sunday for Greek Orthodox. And uh, once a year, it's my chance to talk to you about what it was like growing up as a Greek Orthodox. And you have to bear with me. Uh, on that Sunday, uh, it, was, it was quite a big deal for every people that never went to church before went to church, all the Greeks went. But on that particular day, whenever the phone would ring, my mother would be the first one to get to the phone. Uh, it was a ritual. And when she answered, she would say, Christos Anesti, with a great deal of vigor. In Greek, Christ is risen. Now, if you're Greek on the other end, the proper response was, Alithos, Alithos Anesti. Indeed, indeed he has risen. It's a good greeting for a good day. And it's a reminder to us of, of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and also to focus us on, on the reality of that resurrection. Uh, we don't focus too much on the fact that this is the season of Easter. Easter has seven Sundays. We look at Easter and say, well, that was last week. Nope, this is the second Sunday of Easter. So it gives us an opportunity to focus a little more clearly on the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, and what place it holds in our lives. Resurrection faith, resurrection faith, is always in what Jesus has done, not what he said. Let me say it again. Resurrection faith is always in what Jesus has done, not what he said. There is a Roman Catholic theologian at Boston College named Peter Kreeft, and uh, he has summed it up in his book, uh, Back to Virtue. Simply, the essence of Christianity is not the Sermon on the Mount. When Christianity was proclaimed throughout the world, the proclamation was not, love your enemies. It was, Christ is risen. This was not a new ideal, but a new event that God became man, died, and rose for our salvation. Christianity is first of all not ideal but real, and it is event, news, the gospel, the good news. The essence of Christianity is not Christianity. The essence of Christianity is Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, for instance, not only comes from Jesus, but all also leads us to Jesus. It does not divert us from Jesus to a set of abstract ideals, but its ideals lead us to Jesus, who alone can fulfill them in us, if we let him. The Sermon on the Mount is an arrow, and Jesus is the bullseye, not vice versa. End of quote. The Sermon on the Mount is an arrow, and Jesus is the bullseye. Now, it's interesting that we see this event, this deed of Jesus of rising, dying, rising from the dead, ascending, uh, as being so important, so central to the Christian faith. And yet Luke, in his 
in, in his gospel, he places it just in, in one, one chapter, the last chapter of his uh, gospel, and it focuses on, th- on three short stories. It, it focuses on about 16 hours of Jesus' day, 16 hours, and it's, it's fascinating, it makes us think, well, why? When we look in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he tells us that Jesus appeared to the, to the apostles and to 500 people. Most of them, 25 years later, were still alive. So 500 people saw him. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Jesus walked around in his resurrected body for 40 days. For 40 days. Yet, all we get is these 16 hours. So it's important just to look at these 16 hours to realize that Luke was saying, this is all you need to know. This is the truth and it's all you need to know. We don't have any fanciful stories about these miraculous things that go on. There's a, uh, an ancient document uh, discovered in the second century that uh, addresses uh, the resurrection. And it's the kind of, of story uh, in this document that you would expect to see of something so magnificent like a resurrection. It says the two men flew out of heaven, that they went into the, uh, into the, into the, into the sepulcher. They came out with a third man. Then the two men who came out first, their, their heads grew up into heaven. And the third man, his head, grew past heaven. And then a voice from heaven spoke, and the cross answered. It's a really bizarre story. But it's the kind of thing that you sort of glorification of a big event that you would expect on something like this if it weren't true. If it weren't true. Luke is describing to us a true story, and he's very sparse on his details. In the first chapter of Luke, he says this, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke wants to teach us that these things are certain, they're true, they're not a figment of our imagination or just hopefulness and faith. C.S. Lewis in his uh, essays, God in the Dock, writes, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course, we could make it easier but it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about, end quote. Well, we have facts to bother about and Luke lays them out for us. So let's take a look at them. There are three stories here, two we did not read. We read the one about uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Uh, the, The first story, uh, in, this, in his gospel is the story about the empty tomb, you know, where the women come and discover it, the stone is turned back, and they see the grave clothes laid down in, in the sepulcher, in the grave. They just see that. They realize that the tomb is empty, and they run back and tell others. And then the story goes that Peter came, and he looked in to see. To see. But all that's there are these grave clothes. Now, we often think about the uh, stone in front of the, of the grave as uh, being taken away so that Jesus could get out. But it was not. It was pulled back so we could look in. So that we could look in and see what's really important. Jesus went right through the grave clothes. 
There was a miraculous reality here. And one of the things that we have to understand and remind ourselves as Christians is we believe in miracles. At the center of our faith is a miracle. We should not be embarrassed about that miracle or, or, or make excuses about it. We believe in a miraculous resurrection from the dead. And Luke is trying to show us why we can trust the evidence. Very sparse, but that the rock being turned back, God wants us to look closely at it. Now, the second story is uh, this one that we read this morning of uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Also a very sp a sparse story, uh, but with some wonderful details. I'll spend a little time on that before we go to the third. Um, G these two disciples are walking to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile uh, walk over to Emmaus. It would take them about three hours to walk. And as they're walking, Jesus joins them. And the story says they didn't recognize him for whatever. We, we, we tend to believe that it's God preventing them from uh, recognizing Jesus. Uh, but it's also an interesting because Jesus was so unremarkable. His body was similar to what he'd already have. Even his resurrection body was not remarkable. And so they're walking down the road. And as they're walking down the road, uh, Jesus says, why are you guys so sad? And they look at him and say, are you the only person that doesn't, in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been happening? And he said, well, what happened? I mean, he's leading them on. And uh, so they proceed to tell him what's going on uh, in their sadness. Then at, at that point, uh, Jesus looks at them and says, you know something? You two are fools. Your hearts are slow. And then he gets to, the, uh, to where they're going when they're having dinner, and he reveals himself to them. Now, I want to focus on the three, re three things that are going on in this story, is that their hearts were sad, their hearts were slow to understand and foolish, and their hearts burned. Because this is our story too. This is our story too. Their hearts were sad. They were sad because Jesus did not meet their expectations. Jesus did not meet their expectations. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to suddenly be resurrected from the dead, as it's talked about in the book of Daniel, and that's the only time the resurrection is talked about in the Old, Old Testament. He's going to resurrect from the dead, get the Romans out of Jerusalem, and that Israel would be redeemed. That was their idea of what the Christian faith, what Jesus was all about. And when we have unrealistic or untrue expectations about the gospel, our hearts become sad. And so Jesus disabuses them of this sadness and tells them what's really going on as he tells the story. Now it's important, it was important for these two disciples and it's important for us to focus on, again, the truth because they were focusing on things that weren't true. C.S. Lewis says this about the truth. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. I would like to think that coming to Jesus Christ would make my life perfect, that I would have no problems. Uh, that would be wonderful. And if I went through my life like that, I would have a sad heart too. The truth is, my life with Jesus Christ is difficult. 
It's difficult, but it's good. It's difficult, but it's real life. And that's where we come to Jesus. If we're looking for easy answers, I, I wish there were. I've been a Christian for 58 years, and I'm still turning over rocks looking for easy answers. They just aren't there. Because when we start looking for the easy answers, for comfort, we won't find it. But when we look for truth, we will. And that's what happened to the disciples. So as uh, Jesus is walking along the road, he begins to um, uh, ask them some questions. And he says something really interesting. Uh, he says, uh, you have foolish and slow of heart. You are foolish and slow of heart. It's a fascinating little thing he's saying to them because it's, it wasn't a very Christian thing to do. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, if I went to Ed after church today, I said, you know, Ed, I got to tell you, you're foolish and slow of heart. Ed would look at me and say, goodbye, John, and it would be done. It's not the kind of thing we, 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 we normally expect. But Jesus looks at them and says, you're foolish and slow of heart. And then, what does he do? He doesn't look at them and say, everything is going to be all right. He doesn't look at them and say, don't worry. It's going to be, it's, you know, this is fine. He doesn't do that. It's a very strange thing. For the next three hours, he conducts a Bible study on the road to Emmaus. We want a self-help course. We don't want a Bible study. And, but what he does is opens up the scripture to talk about the Old Testament speaking about him. And he did that because the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Now, once they get to uh, Emmaus, they sit down and have dinner. And they still hadn't recognized him. And as they sit down and have dinner, uh, Jesus breaks the bread and they suddenly re realize it's him. He's revealed to, to them in the breaking of the bread. And he disappears, disappears. Again, supernatural, miraculous. Now they say something very interesting, talking about their hearts again. They say, didn't our hearts burn? Now, I don't know what it means for anybody in this room that when you say, my heart was burning, but there was something important going on. They felt a fire going on within them. The sad heart and the foolish heart was now turned into a burning heart because they had looked at the truth and the truth, as Jesus said, set them free. But it was interesting. They did not say their hearts were burning because they saw Jesus Christ. They said, didn't our hearts burn as we talked to him and he opened up the scriptures. And he opened up the scriptures. We are, I'll speak for myself, I'm really blasé about, about the scriptures sometimes. I forget that there is power in the word of God and that indeed I can meet Jesus there. And indeed all the scriptures are talking about Jesus. Jesus has a chance to lift the spirits up of these two men. And what does he do? He points them to the scripture. He points them to the scripture. Now we have the third little incident that I'll go through quickly. Afterwards, Jesus appears to the uh, 11 uh, apostles. The two disciples are there, Cleopas and his friend, and he reveals himself uh, to them and, uh, and, and begins to talk to them. And they're amazed. And it's, again, a, a strange story that Luke puts in front of us because it's not a, a big glorification. It's a very simple story. And Luke thinks 
This is all you need. This is the simple story you need. The disciples see him. He talks to them. And he has a very interesting request. He says, can I have something to eat? And they gave him, Luke says, a piece of broiled fish. Now, you can ask yourself, why in the world do you put in a detail about broiled fish? But that's Luke's way of saying, this is a true story. I'm not making stuff up that Jesus miraculously uh, made fish there, but this was common. This was ordinary in the sense that Jesus had a real body, a real resurrected body, and that he was among us with that body, and even now he has that body, a great mystery. So the detail here is really fascinating, but it lends credence to the overall veracity of the story. But Jesus says something else in that story as he's meeting with these guys. Then it says as he's finishing, then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. In some respects, that's what's facing us right now in our different roads to Emmaus. There are sad hearts in here. There are foolish hearts in here. And there may even be some burning hearts. But I have a feeling there are more sad hearts and foolish hearts than the third. And I'm going to suggest something for all of us uh, this week uh, as we travel on our own road to Emmaus to experience something of what these disciples did. It's important for us to realize we do have those sad hearts, that we do have those foolish hearts, but we want burning hearts. So let me read to you what C.S. Lewis has about this reality. He says, quote, the great difficulty is to get modern audiences to realize that you are preaching Christianity solely and simply because you happen to think it's true. They always suppose you are preaching it because you like it or think it good for society or something of that sort. Now, a clearly maintained distinction between what the faith actually says and what, it, what you would like it to have said or what you understand or what you personally find helpful or think probable forces your audience to realize that you are tied to your data, just as the scientist is tied by the results of the experiments, that you are not just saying what you like. This immediately helps them realize that what is being discussed is a question about objective fact, not gas about ideals and points of view. We believe in facts. This should change our lives. Christians must rest their faith on the truth. We are not people of the lie, no matter how attractive the lie might be. This is the first time I've preached at a 10 o'clock service that we didn't serve communion. And um, if, if anybody has a shtick, maybe I do, where I talk about what happens at the rail. I can't do that today. And as I prepared the sermon, I was going, what am I going to go for my ta-da? I don't have a ta-da. <laughs> so, so it's really quite depressed. Uh, then I realized I do. I have something far more important and just as impressive. This week, I want you to imagine yourself on the road to Emmaus. And all that you do this week, and realize that along this road, at work, at home, doing the silly things you do, doing the important things that you do, 
Jesus Christ is trying to reveal himself to you. The rock has been thrown away from the sepulcher, from the grave. He wants you to look in. He wants you to see himself. He wants you to experience him. He wants to turn the sadness and foolishness to burning. So I'm going to suggest an exercise that will end up here next week. You all have this scripture in your bulletins today. Take this, take some other passage in the scripture and read it every day. I want you to read it every day and ask Jesus, it's going to take you three minutes, and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, to take your sad heart away, to take your foolish heart away, and to set your heart on fire, to set your heart on fire. And then by next week, prayerfully, you'll come back when we're serving communion. And our prayer is, that Jesus will reveal himself in a special way at the rail, as he did the two disciples at Emmaus, that as he did to the apostles in the upper room, that Jesus will be here in some way. It may not be a flash. You may not have some wonderful experience, but you can count on it on your road to Emmaus that Jesus will be here waiting as he's been waiting and being with you the entire week. And in so doing, we will experience and know that Christ is risen. Alithos, alithos, Anesti. Indeed, he, indeed, he has risen. Amen.